Welcome back to our special mini-series on opioids brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, Behavioral Health Specialist at the IFF. Today, we're going to build on our last episode, which was about situational awareness, and discuss managing exposure risks. Back with us again, we have Alan Van Heck from Bloomfield, Michigan, Local 3045, and Toby Frost from Lafayette, Indiana, Local 472. Alan, Toby, thanks for coming back to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. And let's start with some expanded introductions. Can you tell us about your background uh, and your work in this area? Uh, Toby, let's start with you. So I am a 17-year member with Lafayette Fire Department in Indiana, and I am one of our hazmat team leaders and also on our illicit lab response group. And I've been working in this field for 20 years. I'm also a subject matter expert with federal resources uh, particularly when it comes to the opioid epidemic. Yes, Sarah. Uh, my name is Al Van Heck. I'm a 25-year uh, member of uh, Bloomfield Township Fire Department, currently serving as a captain paramedic. I also am a, an instructor for federal resources. And uh, one of the main programs I teach for them is the uh, Drug IQ program, uh, where I'm a subject matter expert and uh, also got 20 years on the Oakland County Hazmat team. Great. Thanks for those introductions. Uh, let's jump right into it. Let's talk about identifying opioids, what types of substances are out there now, and how might that be different than maybe 5, 10, 20 years ago? One of the challenges when we start talking about opioids and synthetics specifically is there's so many out there. So if you look at what we traditionally think of as heroin or other opioids out there, we all have a traditional picture. We see brown brown powder, white powder, if you're talking about China white or, you know, black tar heroin, all those things that we are used to seeing historically. The difference now is that there is no such thing as an organic or pure uh, substance any longer. What they're doing in the trade is they are using these synthetics to cut their product or just straight up make a fake product, uh, and it eliminates the whole food chain. So if you think of it like a farm in a traditional perspective, you know, you would have this massive machine. They have to grow the poppies in the Middle East, let's say. Then they have to harvest them, and then they have to refine them. Then they have to package them and get them ready for import to the United States or wherever. And in order to do that, you need go fast boats or you need smugglers. You need all these different routes of entry to bypass customs and law enforcement before you ever get it to the street. And that's a massive machine that has to happen in the traditional market. Today, uh, the uh, illicit use is as simple as ordering it online, getting the pure substance shipped to your location, wherever that might be. And the potency is so much dramatically stronger that it just takes a little bit to be able to cut it and make the same amount of traditional product. And so the, if, I, if someone were to buy fentanyl from overseas, get it shipped in the United States, a kilogram of fentanyl can be up to 200 tons of traditional heroin when you cut it and distribute it for street sales. And so that's one of the big challenges is that now importing it's much easier. And then the challenge becomes when we go to identify it, 
traditionally, um, you know, you, we've all seen law enforcement using the color pouches where you put a little bit of product in there, snap the vials, and if it turns blue, you've got fentanyl or you've got heroin. Um, the challenge is that there are so many synthetics out there today that there is no pouch that works for them all. Just in the fentanyl family, there's over 2,000 possible analogs out there. And that's not even counting all these other synthetics that people are using uh, that are similar or in the same family. And so literally there are thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals out there that can be used in this illicit market. And so identifying this stuff is a huge challenge when it comes to finding out what people are actually using. Yeah, I'll kind of just add on to what Toby said is, is uh, the whole drug world in general is going synthetic. In the future, you know, there won't be things that were grown in the ground. It'll all be synthetics. It's way cheaper to have one individual in a lab with chemicals make this stuff versus farming it and so on and so forth. And the scary thing with the synthetic opioids is, is the, the strengths of these are so vast. I mean, if you look at, you know, fentanyl versus carfentanyl, you know, carfentanyl could kill cities. And um, people, I, I want to say the term fentanyl gets overused. Really, synthetic opioids is the best one to use because we really don't know. And I think a lot of times the people on the streets have no clue what they're getting. It's some sort of synthetic. They're not quite sure the strength of it. And nobody really knows exactly the right amount to cut it. It's, it's not like there's a quality assurance guy working to make sure that these synthetic opioids are, you know, mixed correctly. It's just that there's no way to do that. And um, it, it's a scary, scary world right now with, uh, with, with where this is going. You made a great point, Alan, and that is that we don't know the effect of some of these. These started out coming out of traditional pharmaceutical research, and that's how people figured out how to make it. But as we've moved forward, they're just using predictive chemistry, and they know that if they add this chemical to it, it's going to make it stronger or weaker. But there's no testing. There's no studying. This is simply somebody in a lab using some chemistry knowledge, doing predictive al algorithms and adding different chemicals to it to change the chemical and make a new one. And so we really have no idea of long-term effects or short-term effects, for that matter, of these products. It's just a wild, wild west right now. Of uh, Maybe even a better word is a research chemical. Um, they, they, these are simply chemicals they're blending, uh, using a little bit of chemistry and some knowledge to predict what the outcome is going to be. And we just don't know, or the people getting it on the street don't really know what they're getting. And let's be honest, when they're over, ordering it from overseas and you get it or the, per, the person purchasing gets it, uh, there's no quality assurance that what you ordered is what you got. Uh, they, they have this big business set up, but the reality is that you're getting a substance that you can't really verify easily what that product is. You, you know, Toby, what, what, what scares me also is the fact that they're, they're cutting this fentanyl or this heroin with other pharmaceuticals. You know, when you look at cutting agents like xylazine, gabapentin, Neurontin, um, you know, in a lot of cases, they're trying to potentiate or even up the power of the fentanyl, which is, uh, which is really, really scary. So I think a good amount of fear and caution is warranted. You know, it makes sense. 
but I also think that a lot of fear can come from misinformation. Um, I know there's a lot of misinformation out there with the synthetics, especially fentanyl. Uh, let's correct some of that right here. Uh, what's being circulated in terms of the information that's out there and then what's actually true? So one of the most common myths is that uh, one touch is going to kill you or that you're going to absorb it through your skin. And the simple reality is you're not going to. Uh, when we're talking about fentanyl, fentanyl has been around since the 50s. Uh, late 50s went in development. It went into medical testing in the early 60s. And we actually know a lot about fentanyl. Uh, from the pharmaceutical standpoint. And one of the things we know about fentanyl is the rate it absorbs to your skin. And I don't want to get into a whole lot of math, but the science behind it is that we know that fentanyl absorbs to your skin at a rate of 61 nanograms per centimeter squared per hour. Now, I'm throwing some numbers out there, but we also know that you're, the human, average human person has about 18,000 square centimeters of skin. And so using the basic math, in order for you to overdose and die from pure fentanyl, you're going to have to cover every square centimeter of skin on your body and lay there for two hours and 20 minutes before you're going to get a lethal dose in your body. I mean, that's not even realistic. And we're talking about pure fentanyl. The reality is that stuff on the street is a 1% to 3% concentration of active ingredient. Just like when you go buy an aspirin, we all know the aspirin, or any medicine for that matter, is mostly just cutting and binding agent. It's just, in, it's just stuff to make the pill. The active ingredient is a very small piece of that. That's also true with these illicit substances on the street. And so when somebody is using a heroin or a fake oxy pill or something like that that's made with a synthetic the reality is that about one to three percent of that product is actually active ingredient. And so we've added now another huge safety factor on that. And so if we want to be a little more pragmatic and say, well, I can't tell the difference between pure or street cut. So how am I going to protect myself? Let's say that you cover the palm of your hand and pure fentanyl, not street cut, but somehow you ended up with pure right out of the bag, pure fentanyl and you let it sit in your hand for 15 minutes before you can wash it off. And you wash it off, plain soap and water. You don't want to use hand sanitizer or anything like that because that'll make it absorb through your skin faster. But you wash it off with soap and water. What's your actual exposure? Well, again, using the math, uh, you're going to have an exposure of about 76 uh, micrograms. Now, how does that compare? Well, you're going to need about 34 times that to take away your backache. And you're going to need about 340 times that exposure to uh, take away all your pain. And you're going to need uh, over 34,000 times that amount to overdose and die. And so the reality is that you are not going to absorb it through your skin and overdose. Now, if you inhale it, it's going to knock you down. No question about it. The fastest route of entry, let's go back to risk-based response when we talk about things like hazmat. If you inhale it, uh, it's going to knock you down. That's the fastest route of exposure to your body. So protect your respiratory. Um, but you're not going to get it by touching it or looking at it. Uh, you're not going to, you know, I just saw a headline just a few months ago that about gray death uh down in Louisiana and some other areas in the South and, and law enforcement saying one touch is going to kill you. The reality, it's not. Um, it doesn't absorb through your skin that fast. And incidentally, uh, 
that exposure on your hand um, for 15 minutes is going to take two hours to work through your skin, get in your blood before you feel it. So even after you have the exposure on your skin, it takes a long time for it to get through your skin into your blood system. And so the idea that you're going to touch it and drop is just not physiologically possible. Um, so protect your respiratory, but you don't really have to worry about getting on your skin. If you do, wash it off with plain soap and water, nothing exotic. If you add alcohol to it, it'll absorb through your skin faster. If you add uh, hand sanitizer, it's alcohol-based. If you add any sort of lotion with a moisturizer, it'll absorb through your skin faster. Uh, so plain soap and water is what you need to do. So Toby, you lost me there with some of this math. So I want to go, want to go back to some of the first things you said uh, to try to paint a visual of what this looks like. If you think about burying somebody in the sand at the beach and you cover them from head to toe in sand and you protect their respiratory, so put a snorkel on them so they can breathe and, and put goggles on so their eyes are protected and you cover them. If that was pure fentanyl, you would have to lay in that pile of pure fentanyl covering every square centimeter of your skin for over two hours to get a fatal overdose. It's just not realistic. And, and Toby, that's pure fentanyl, too. You know, most of what we see out there is, is not pure fentanyl. You know, an interesting thing that I, I, I've learned through teaching a lot of the Border Patrol and uh, customs agents is that even the, uh, the the opioids they're seeing come over the southern border, they're all cut. They're all cut somewhere between 5 and 7%. They are not seeing pure product coming over the southern border. Now, stuff coming in the mail from, uh, from Asia, other places, I would suspect that would have a better chance of being pure product than, uh, than what we're seeing come over the southern border. So I, I guess I said that to, to make people understand that a lot of what we're seeing and the chances are what you're seeing is cut agent. Another myth I'd like to talk about is that the, there is uh, opioid or excuse me, naloxone resistant opioids. And the, the, there really is no such thing. So if it's an opioid, naloxone will work with it. There are other drugs out there on the market that are similar to opioids. They may look like opioids and people push naloxone on it and say, hey, this is, uh, this is an opioid overdose and naloxone didn't work. It's not, an, it's not an opioid overdose. If the naloxone didn't work, it's either one of two things. It's not an opioid or unfortunately that person may have done an opioid but they're already deceased or they're at a point where the naloxone won't work anymore. So I think we've all been on cardiac arrest where we've pushed lots of epinephrine and we've done so unsuccessfully. That's very similar to somebody that's, that's overdosed on an opioid and passed away, but we get on scene, we try to give naloxone and say, hey, the naloxone didn't work. It must be resistant, a resistant opioid when realistically it's not. It's just unfortunate that the person has already passed away. So Toby, to summarize what I'm hearing you say is that it is really unlikely uh, that one of our members would go down on a run for from dermal absorption of these substances. And what we 
really need to be concerned about is breathing it in. That's absolutely correct. I mean, look at your route of entry, just like we would with any other sort of toxic exposure. If you inhale it, it can affect you very quickly, but you are not going to get it through your skin. And hand in hand with that, there's another myth out there that latex gloves won't work, that it'll absorb through latex gloves. Uh, that's not true. Absolutely not true. Most of us wear nitrile gloves every day already because of latex allergies and other things. And so when we talk about wearing nitrile gloves as our basic level of, of PPE, uh, you want your, your normal everyday overdose uh, your basic level of PPE is probably going to be nitrile gloves. Um, they're going to work just fine. If you wear latex gloves, they're going to work just fine. We're worried about all the other things that are out there, not the fentanyl. And if you have gloves on, they're very easy to remove, and they're very easy to remove any contamination, incidental contamination you might have gotten on your skin that way. So nothing wrong with latex gloves. We just mostly all wear nitrile nowadays, and that's kind of the industry standard. So what about uh, if a member's responding and, you know, maybe realizes there's some, some powder on their clothes? I know the initial sort of gut reaction might be to try to wipe it off. Uh, is that all right? Or what should they do instead? So that's, that's a great question. Again, the, the biggest concern we have is aerosolizing this product or getting it airborne. And so if you have, if you notice white powder on your uniform or even if your victim has white powder on their clothes, uh, consider wetting it down very quickly. Take a bottle of water, pour a little bit of water on there, uh, something to get it to stick to the uniform or the victim, and then remove that article of clothing. And then uh, you're going to want to launder it and get rid of that product, get it off of your gear. The big thing is that nothing to add any energy to it. And so not only do you not want to brush it off your uniform, but if you are working a patient and let's say their choice of delivery was to crush pills up and snort it and on the bed stand next to the bed is some crushed up powder, don't treat the victim right there. Take the victim out in the living room, get away from that powder. We don't want to disturb the scene. Uh, if we start doing CPR and really working the victim, uh, there's a risk of knocking that powder over or aerosolizing it and that's where our risk of exposure will come from. And so. When we look at our level of protection for ourselves as individuals, uh, in the Drug IQ program, the way we break it down is we break it down into four different tiers of protection. And so when we say none, which is our lowest tier of protection, uh, what we're talking about is wearing nitrile gloves and I see no powder. I see no free product that's going to get aerosolized. And so at that point, I'm wearing nitrile gloves. The minute I see free product or powder product that might get aerosolized, I really want to protect my airway now. So now that becomes what we call consider a small response in the drug IQ program. And you're going to up your level of protection now and put on an N95 mask to protect your respiratory. Or even better, a P100. N95, P100, either one's going to work fine. But we're looking at a relatively low risk of exposure, and it is realistically a street cut product. When we get beyond anything more than that, uh, you, you're overstepping your first response training and PPE because when we start getting indications of pure product or indications of a lab or distribution, uh, we really need to stop, start upping our resources and our responses. We're going to need a hazmat team. We're going to need law enforcement. Uh, we're going to need a illicit lab team. Uh, so we're overstepped. We're, we've gone beyond our level of training and protection at this point. And so we really want to stay at... Uh, 
essentially, if you a good way to look at it is the overdose level. Where I see product, if I see free powder, put an N95 mask and nitrile gloves. If there's no free product, a set of gloves, and you're ready to work that patient. But um, avoid creating dust. Anything that's going to aerosolize that product, you want to avoid. If you get it on your uniform, uh, you're going to want to uh, get it off your uniform, decontaminate it. Uh, but at the end of the day, don't create dust. That's where someone might get exposed. So let's shift to a risk-based response. What's the model for adjusting how members respond based on the level of risk that's involved? So in Federal Resources Drug IQ program, uh, we looked at a lot of different published data and tried to look at it from a scientific perspective and reliable sources. We wanted to get away from some of the myth and hysteria you see in the media and look at what's really going on. We know a lot about fentanyl and these synthetic products. There's been a lot of research done through pharmaceutical companies, Department of Defense. And so Federal Resources looked at all of this data and put it together in a relatively simple model. And so our model is four tiers of response. It starts as a none, then we have small, then we move to large, and then we move to lab. And so when we're talking about a none or small response, that's really what we're talking about here in this podcast. First responders are going to stumble into something, and that's the level of response we're talking about. As each level of response moves up, your need for resources increases. You need more detection. You need more PPE. You need to start looking at different types of decontamination, both the scene and for individuals. Uh, we need law enforcement. We need tactical units. We need evidence protection units. So as you move up the chain, everything becomes, all the requirements grow in relation to the risk that you might be responding to. At the none and small level, we don't, we don't think that you're going to encounter any pure product based on the risk-based response. It's probably street cut, and that's how you pick your level of PPE. So in this risk-based response model, you've outlined four different levels for us, and you've given us the names. There's none, small, large, and lab. Uh, in a minute, we'll get into the, you know, the right PPE and response, like you mentioned, level of training, resources, uh, and things that might be required to respond at that risk level. Uh, but to start, just tell us, you know, what's a scenario at each of those levels, none, small, large, and lab? So when we're dealing with a none response, essentially what we're looking at is on scene you might have a hypodermic needle or you might have some pills that are still intact they're not crushed or maybe a little bit of powder in a ziploc bag or stamp bag dime bag something like that so there's no free product that's going to create dust no friable product and so that's what we consider a none response so that's going to be your typical overdose is is there's nothing there that's going to aerosolize, create dust, um, we consider that a none response. When we have free product um, at a gram or less, um, we consider that a small response. Now, a gram is hard to imagine. Uh, most people don't spend much time measuring powders to see what a gram looks like. So an easy way to think of it is a packet of sugar. Go to your coffee bar and look at a packet of sugar or a packet of sweet and low, open it up, dump it into a pile, that's what a gram of product looks like. And so it's a gram of product, uh, free or sealed up, a gram or less. It could be a pile the size of a penny. That's another good way of looking at it. And so any of those things, we're going to consider a 
small response. At the small response level now, our, our, our concern is that I see product that might become airborne. Um, a gram or less, so not very much. Once we go beyond a gram of product, now we're moving to a large response. Or if I have any indication of distribution. So maybe I see a whole bunch of empty dime bags or I see a bag of product and it actually says fentanyl on it. You know what? If it says it's fentanyl, assume it's fentanyl and we're going to back out. Once we get beyond the small, we're beyond that first response level. And so now we're going to large and beyond that, when we get to a lab, a lab can be a pill pressing or a pill processing lab, or it can be an actual chemical lab where you walk into it. Uh, one of the di things that's different with these synthetics is it's not like the meth one pot. You go to any big box store and buy everything you need to make the product, throw it in a, in a, a sports aid bottle, mix it up, and then wait for the product. You actually need certain chemicals um, and you need certain processes to make it happen. So you're not going to run into very many of these uh, actual chemical processing labs. Uh, and if you walk into it, you're going to know it. There'll be no question because you're going to see chemicals. You're going to see uh, glassware and things like that. And you're going to know uh, you've just walked into a scene that you probably need to back back out of. There's no reason for you to be in there. So our, our basic response is none. I don't see anything that's going to create dust small, I have a gram or less, a sugar packet or less of free product that might create dust, and anything more than that becomes a large or a lab, uh, which is really, you know, when we start talking about those kinds of levels, we're looking at, you know, the full-blown drug IQ program where we get into some of those advanced techniques. Thanks for explaining all four of those different levels. Uh, I know in this conversation, we're going to focus on the lowest two levels, the none and the small. Uh, so if members encounter that none level that's common, um, what's the response based on that none level of risk? The, the none response is, a, uh, is probably 99% of the runs that we go on. And these are very low risk incidents. If there is a product or if we even see a product, the product is contained in a syringe, in a glassine bag, in some sort of intact pill, and there isn't the risk of it getting up into our, our breathing zone. So as long as you can't get something that ends up in your lungs, the, the risk is very small. So the none responses are, uh, are our, our bread and butter type call, where uh, very little risk, very little chance of it getting up into the air, very little risk of us uh, getting an airborne response um, from whatever we're, we're seeing on scene. And the other thing is, is if we end up on a scene where there is drugs there, we realistically you know, can remove ourselves and the patient from the scene and uh, just try to stay away from whatever that, that hazard may be. But the none response, safety glasses, gloves, which we should be wearing on every single medical anyways. Um, very, very low risk. Uh, keep your eyes open, stay away from any product you see. But even if you were to get close to it, it is contained in some way or the other to prevent it from going into your lungs. And, and so I think a, a great way of thinking of that is I have no respiratory risk. My only risk is getting it on me 
and I don't want to carry it out. So the gloves will protect me and we're going to err on the side of caution and we're going to wear eye protection. Uh, your eyes absorb it 80 times faster than the rest of your body. And so just like any other sort of uh, contagion or toxic, we don't want to touch our nose, mouth, or eyes. Uh, keep it out of there. Those are our highest risks of exposure. Great. Thanks for describing that non-level of risk-based response. Uh, let's go you know, to the next level, um, that, that small level where there's a, a gram or less of uh, free product. So, so Sarah, on the small level response, what you may see is still a small amount of product, but at this point in time, the product may be easily aerosolized. A powder on an individual's clothes, a, a powder that's, um, that's on the, uh, the end table or, or in the area we need to work in. Maybe there's some pills that are crushed up or crumbly. If we see crumbly tablets or crumbly pills, those lead us to think that uh, perhaps these are, are, are homemade type pills. Um, anything where we're gonna have the ability to touch the product, transfer it to us, transfer it up into our airway, obviously has a little bit more risk involved. So what we're encouraging at this point in time is gloves, some sort of non-vented goggles, because like Toby said, our eyes are definitely a, uh, an easy area to get this into our system. And then throwing on that N95 or P100 mask or respirator to really give ourselves a barrier between that, that possible aerosolized product and our, uh, our respiratory tract. You can uh, look to the pharmaceutical industry at some of their engineering controls and uh, one of the things that they use to keep their employees from not being exposed is high humidity. So where they make these pills, they actually add humidity to the air and humidity keeps that powder down um, onto a surface or lower to the ground. And we can use you know, water or whatever we can, a wet washcloth, a wet towel, a wet paper towel, and we can keep that free powder down away from our uh, our breathing zone um, or we can just remove the patient from the scene that that's definitely an, an option at that is to remove the patient from the scene now remember this that if we see a visible product and it's on our front torso or the patient's front torso remember you're going to want to cut that off also if we're to pull our shirt up over our head the front of that shirt if it has product on it it's going to put that right into our breathing zone and it's going to make it more of an exposure risk for us. So please keep that in mind. If we were to find something on a shirt, uh, we would want to wet that down, get it off and then cut that shirt off, not pull it up over our head. That's a great point, Al. You really don't want to add any energy to this powder. Any energy you add is going to get it up in the air and we want to avoid that at all costs. So Cutting the clothing is a great way to avoid adding energy. Uh, you don't want to brush it off with your hand. You're going to add energy and you're going to aerosolize it. And that's what we're trying to avoid. So you just told us about the, the lowest two levels of the model, the none and the small. Uh, I know there's, there's way more information uh, that we can't cover in this podcast uh, than the, the other, the highest two levels, the large and the lab. 
what's the initial action that a member should take if they come across one of those scenarios? And then beyond that, where can they go to, to learn more about this risk-based response model uh, and how to address those other two levels? So if you stumble into something more than a small, it's time to back out. If you have a viable patient, grab that patient, drag them out. You don't have to work your patient in that hazardous environment. If we move them out, we can work outside of that environment. Um, but if you stumble into a lab or anything like that, uh, it's time to back out. Now, if you stumble into, say, a structure fire and you run into a lab, much like we would a meth lab or anything else, um, if you're wearing your SCBA and your bunker gear, um, you're going to be protected from that aerosol route of exposure because that's what we're worried about. But the difference is now I need decon, I need more resources. And a great if you're interested in that or that's a risk that you think you might encounter, uh, reach out to Federal Resources at training at federalresources.com and you can get more information about the whole drug IQ program and uh, some of the other training we offer out there including things like protecting ourselves from hostile situations and different programs like that. Sarah, one of the things individuals like best about the Drug IQ program is we actually bring a milling lab to the classroom. Uh, the participants will actually get a bag of powder that's pure product or in theory, pure product. And then they mix it up. They try to get the math right. They try to create a, uh, a product, they learn how to mill it, they learn how to tablet it, and um, and then we look at it to see how strong the mix is they made so they have a better visual understanding of what it is that, that that's killing people nowadays. And uh, I don't want to give away our trade secrets, but uh, there's an interesting product we use that, uh, that works really, really well to get their attention. And then hand in hand with that, we'll actually give you a set of cards that have all these SOPs spelled out for you, a quick reference guide. And so when we talk about uh, small, none small, large and lab, the resources you need, uh, the tools you need to accomplish that, all those quick references are on those cards. And like Alan said, we'll, we'll go through the whole process with you. We'll go through detection. Uh, we spend half the class hands on actually working with this stuff, uh, showing you why it's such a challenge, uh, showing you how it aerosolizes, how long it stays in the air, how to detect it, how to neutralize it, uh, how to do advanced decontamination and things of that nature are all part of that full all-day uh, program for Drug IQ. Sarah, I know quite a few departments that have adopted, um, you know, our, uh, our system into their own <laughs> SOPs. Uh, they've literally just taken what we've got and transformed it into their SOPs. And it's a very common sense system. Uh, it, it really does make it uh, easy for all of us. I love that. We know that adults learn best by doing. So experiences during training really makes the information sink in more so that members can apply it out in the field. I also spoke with Thomas Breyer, Director of Fire and EMS Operations at the IFF, to get a sense of how this risk-based approach is different than what's been done in the past. The, the concept of a risk-based approach to uh, emergency mitigation and management is not a new concept to the fire service in terms of responding to uh, structure fires or uh, perhaps certain rescue situations. 
uh, or even uh, when you know addressing just large scale incidents that are multifaceted. However, the 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 use of of a risk based assessment is generally part of EMS planning again for response to the the overall community. It's not typically used as part of a response for uh, individual demand. So responding to a, a, a opioid or uh, overdose historically just is associated with the, the scene safety BSI that we've been talking about, uh, but not so much analyzing and assessing the things that you're seeing to perhaps modify your plan. Ow, Toby, what haven't we talked about yet that you think is important for our listeners to know? So here's something I was thinking about, Sarah, and it, it is, once again, something we teach in our class. There's There's been a lot of uh, possible exposures out in the field, whether it be fire, police, EMS, whoever, that, that we really don't believe were exposures. Um, it gets reported in the media that it is, and then but the way the individual presents as an exposure just doesn't add up to us. And I'll give you an example of somebody gets a white powder on them and they begin to have things like they begin to get sweaty, they begin to breathe fast, they get very anxious. And um, those are really the opposite thing that we would expect from somebody that's exposed to an opioid. Remember, when, when somebody takes an opioid, their breathing slows down, their heart slows down, they're, they're calmed. It, it's very much like you're, you're going in for a surgery and they're getting ready to put you under. So what we believe is going down or, or, or people believe that they're getting exposed to an opioid is really more of a psychosomatic, maybe anxiety type response of, oh my gosh, I have this powder on me. Um, you know, now I'm nervous or scared, which is understandable, but it's just what they present with is way different than what we would present from an opioid exposure. Now, could they have been exposed to, you know, an upper, a cocaine, a meth, something like that? Absolutely. We would expect that type of response from that. But when somebody's truly exposed to an opioid, um, they're probably, if, if it gets up in the airway and gets in their system, they're going to uh, go unconscious really quickly. And uh, once again, their breathing's going to slow down, their heart rate's going to slow down. And uh, that's more of the response that we would expect to see. And I guess I just want everybody to understand the difference between uh, those two things. That's a great point, Al, because it goes back to signs and symptoms, right? We all know when we're doing patient assessment, uh, signs and symptoms, look at the exposure. Um, and when somebody says their, their heart's pounding out of their chest, they're dizzy, they're lightheaded, uh, those are not the symptoms of an opio opioid overdose. Um, they could be a synthetic cannabinoid. They could be spice, uh, excuse me, cocaine, methamphetamine, any of those other products that are out there, but that's not an opioid. And you know what? The reality is if you can ask for Narcan, you probably don't need it. I'm not going to argue with somebody. I'm not going to fight with somebody. Uh, but if the person's talking to you, they're breathing fine, 
go back to your medical direction. I know ours is uh, eight respirations or less per minute. If they're under eight respirations, if they're not sustaining their breathing on their own, then I'm going to use it. If it's over that, I don't need to give it to them. They're breathing. Uh, just continue on your patient assessment and your treatment. We look at a lot of these stories, like Al mentioned, that are in the media where the signs and symptoms when someone thought they were exposed is they were dizzy, they were lightheaded, their heart was pounding. And those simply are not an opioid response. So go back to your signs and symptoms. Go back to the risk-based approach. I mean, that's one of the nice things about our, our drug IQ card system is that it takes the thought out of it. Identify your scene size up, drive your SOP based on what you've seen, and move forward. Al, Toby, we've covered a lot of ground here in this conversation today. I want to thank you for giving us an introduction to this risk-based response model for opioid incidents. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Sarah, for having us. Yep. Thank you, Sarah, Thomas, and uh, be safe. Thank you, guys. And to our listeners, if you haven't yet, check out the previous episode for more with Toby and Al. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.